Would you uh, take your copies of God's Word and open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul is writing a letter to his brother and friend in the faith, Timothy. Uh, Paul had planted a church at Ephesus. It's, the record of this is in Acts chapter 19. Some very phenomenal things happened there as the gospel was proclaimed. Multitudes of people were being brought to faith in Christ as the Spirit of God was awakening consciences and turning people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Timothy had been left behind to be uh, the, the founding pastor of this initial church plant. And Paul is, is writing encouragement and admonition in this first pastoral letter. So Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, we read these words. I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. More than 20 years ago, I I met her. She um, was a frequent church attender, a follower of Christ. She evidenced love for the Lord. She was in her early to mid-60s and her hair was graying when she said softly with tears coming down her cheeks, I just cannot forgive myself. I just cannot forgive myself. She shook her head slowly back and forth to emphasize what she was saying. I cannot forgive myself no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do. I just cannot forgive myself. Four decades previous to this tearful confession, she underwent an illegal abortion to cover her sexual sin. No matter how hard she tried, she said, no matter what she did, no matter how often she begged and pleaded for God to forgive her, she had no inward rest, no abiding sense of his presence, no joy in Christ. Her peace was diminished. Her service enervated. She was sequestered in this inner prison of turmoil and anguish. In reality, her heart was denying the sufficiency of Christ to overcome the power and guilt of her sin. Many of us know the the grief of unrelieved guilt. Many of us know the the grief of unrelieved shame. Our joy and peace in Christ is diminished because of that one sin that seemingly there is no answer for, there's no solution to it. Many of us are less worried about yesterday's sin and we're wearied by today's battle with sin. Sin is more present, it's more attractive, it's more active than we would dare to admit. And yet we find ourselves day-to-day struggling with the reality of sin's indwelling presence. 
that many of us confuse our record and performance with the acceptance and achievement of Christ as the basis for pardon, as the basis for forgiveness, as the basis of our standing and our hope before the living God. Theologically, it would be said we confuse and invert sanctification and justification. We think that somehow our peace, our sense of joy, our boldness and confidence in prayer, our freedom and worship, our unfettered service is dependent upon the warmth of our devotions, our consistency, and our own willpower. We've confused the sufficiency of Christ with our insufficiency. So in the middle of this chapter, in this warm pastoral letter full of exhortation and full of admonition, Paul writes, because Christ came into the world to save sinners, we must claim his sufficiency for every circumstance. Because Christ came to save sinners, we look to his sufficiency and not our own. In the opening verses here... Paul looks back. He thinks back. In fact, if you were to look carefully, the tenses of the verb change. Because Christ came to save sinners. In other words, we claim the sufficiency of Christ for our past. Those things that we would rather forget. Those things that we cannot imagine that we did them. Those things that we can't answer why we did them. How do we face a personal history that's checkered? How do we face a personal history that's blotted by By sins that diminish our peace and deprive us of of joy. Business practices that were less than ethical. Financial endeavors in which we rounded the corners to make more money to enhance our profit. The papers that were plagiarized. The lies that were told. The tests on which we cheated. The dishonesty to spouse, employers, employees. The addictions to pornography or other substance abuses, the flirtation, the immorality. How do we overcome those things that we wish we could undo? Well, in the opening verses, Paul says, we have to claim the sufficiency of Christ for our past. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, we lean on the intervention of Christ in verse 12. Paul begins with a burst of praise. He says, I thank him and it's Christ. I thank Christ who's given me strength. When he looks back, rather than groveling in sin, he glories in the redeeming work and the intervention of the Lord Jesus Christ. He looks back and rather than wallow in all that he was and all that he did, he sees the hand of Christ and intervening in his life and rescuing him and turning his life around. Acts chapter 9 records the, the, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and it's rather dramatic. In fact, in the text before us this morning, Paul is completely honest. He's transparent. He's honest about what he was, and he's honest about what he did. In fact, he uses three ugly terms to describe himself. He says of himself that I was a blasphemer. And the object of his blasphemy was Christ. He reviled Christ. He did not embrace him or his claims. And he made him an object of profanity and cursing. He says of himself that I was a persecutor. Not only did I slander Christ and level accusations at Christ, but I also persecuted those who followed him. If you know a little bit about the history of Paul in several places in Acts, Acts 8, for example, 
uh, Acts 7, toward the end of the chapter, he um, was holding the garments of those who stoned Stephen to death. He was consenting to the death of Stephen, the first early church martyr. They beat this man to death by pummeling him repeatedly with stones. And Paul is standing there observing and holding the garments of those who were hurling the stones. Paul's emboldened by this act. And so Acts chapter 8 says that Paul began to breathe out threatenings and he made havoc of the church everywhere he went. He was a persecutor. He hunted people down because they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. But worst of all, not only a blasphemer and a persecutor, he says of himself, I was an insolent opponent. And the Greek word from which my text, my translation, the English Standard Version draws insolent opponent from the original word indicated that Paul was a cruel man. He was a sadist. He took great delight in humiliating people for their faith. All of that, Paul says, when he looks back, that's what he was and that's what he did. But in looking back, he doesn't glory in the sin. He acknowledges it for what it was. He glories in the Savior. He glories and gives Praise and thanksgiving to Christ who intervened and rescued him from the path that he was on. Paul's deep gratitude, in other words, confirms that he knew the strength to turn from this life, the strength to change the direction of his life was not his own. It was because someone else had stepped into his life and interposed and changed his heart and it changed the direction of his life. It's in the security of grace It's in the security of acceptance before God because of the sufficiency of Christ that you and I can be honest about our past guilt and our past sins and our past failures. Something about the security of Christ's grace grants us the security of honest self-assessment. We can face the past because, and we can own the past because we're owned by a great Savior. Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, is in the house of Simon the Pharisee, a man full of religious pride and arrogance, a man who postured himself as one marked by great righteousness. And in the midst of this dinner party thrown on behalf of Jesus, a woman called a sinner, which in biblical parlance, the language of the scripture means that she was undoubtedly a a harlot, a prostitute, a a woman of, uh, of great impurity. This woman comes in and she has a, a, a flask of ointment and she begins to weep at the feet of Jesus. And her tears are so profuse that she begins to wash away the dirt and the grime of the day's activity. And she undoes her hair and she stoops and she dries the feet of Christ with her hair. And then she pours out this expensive ointment and anoints and soothes his feet. And Simon the Pharisee observing this stiffens within himself And he says within himself, if he knew, if this man was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman it is that's touching him. And of course, Jesus, knowing this, turns and he looks at Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon says, say it, say it, Lord. And Jesus says, you see this woman? When I came in, you gave me no water for my feet, but she's bathed my feet with her tears. You gave me no towel with which to dry my feet, but she's dried my feet with her hair. You gave me no ointment with which to anoint and cleanse my body. But she's poured out this very expensive ointment upon my feet. And then he tells this little parable. He says, 
two debtors owed amount of money to one man and one owed about $500 and the other man owed about $50 and the man to whom the debt was owed said I forgive you both and then he says Simon who do you think loves more the one who has forgiven much or the one who's forgiven little and Simon rightly says the one who's forgiven more loves more And he says, you're right, this woman, though her sins were great, is forgiven. And therefore, she loves much. When we look back at our past, the things that we wished we had not done, the things we wished we could forget, may God grant us the grace not to grovel in the sin, but to glory in the fact that Christ came in and intervened and interjected himself. We claim the sufficiency of Christ for our past when we lean on His intervention, when we glory in His strength, and when we lean and acknowledge the mercy of Christ. That's what the text says in verse 13. Paul says, But I received mercy after acknowledging all that He was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a cruel and sadistic man who took great delight in humiliating people. For their faith in Christ. In spite of that, I received mercy. And in uh, verse 13, the, the little conjunction there, but in the Greek text, it's the strongest possible conjunction emphasizing the contrast. This is what I was, but this is what I received. I've heard people, and I'm sure you have, and maybe you've said it. I think I've said it, quite honestly of some heinous situation or circumstance, they don't deserve mercy. They don't deserve mercy. Well, think about it for a moment. If they deserved mercy, would it be mercy? See, mercy is what you receive when you don't, when you deserve something far worse. No one ever deserves mercy. You don't merit mercy or it ceases to be mercy. You don't achieve mercy or it's not mercy. You don't labor and work And obtain mercy. It is a free gift. And in looking back at his past, Paul says, yes, I was all of that. But Christ strengthened me. Christ turned me. And Christ poured out his mercy upon me. Not because of who I was and what I did. But in fact, in spite of who I was and what I did. Jeremiah the prophet writes in Lamentations 3. That it's of the Lord's mercies, the Lord's compassions that we've not been consumed because they're fresh and they're new every morning. Great is his faithfulness toward us. The psalmist says the steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. In writing Psalm 103, David says that God's mercy is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities or has mercy, pours out his mercy upon those who fear him. In the case of Paul and in our case, when we consider our past, the Lord, listen, the Lord withheld what our sins merited. He withheld what our behavior and our conduct would earn us and achieve for us. And he poured out his mercy upon us that he might magnify Christ in the midst of our fallenness and in our sinfulness. 
We claim the sufficiency of Christ not only by by recognizing the intervention of Christ and by by leaning on his mercy, but also by leaning on his grace. In verse 15, the text says, the grace of our Lord did what? It overflowed for me. Earlier this year uh, in the spring, the, the Mississippi, because of the rains to the north and the melting snow and the ice in the north, began to overflow its banks. I don't know if it was of historic proportions or not, but a good friend of mine who often goes to Arkansas would comment on how the river had overflowed its banks. In a very similar way, that's what this word overflowed means. It's translated from, from a, a, a particular Greek word that means beyond bounds and beyond proportion, beyond measure. Grace overflowed my life. It overflowed the, the banks of my life and the boundaries of my need and the boundaries of my sin. God, for my sin, gave a greater grace. Well, that's what Paul would write in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, where sin abounded. Grace abounded all the more because the Lord's grace is greater than the power and guilt of our past. Many of you are familiar with John Newton. Jim, this morning in his offertory song, sung a refrain from that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton. John Newton, many of you will recall or know that he was the captain of a slave ship at one time, a man given to incredible cruelty and barbarity. A depraved man, a debauched man who at one time became enslaved himself. And he said at one point in his life that he was haunted by 20,000 ghosts from his past. He could hear the rattling chains and the cries and the screams. And you would think that the Apostle Paul, a violent man, a man given to persecution and blasphemy, that surely he would have recalled the faces of those whom he had imprisoned for their faith. That he would have recalled their pleading for mercy and leniency. That he would have recalled fathers being separated from families and the arresting of mothers and the separating of families because he was a man given to great cruelty. Near the end of his life, John Newton said, I know two things. As an aging, dying man, I know that I'm a great sinner, but I also know that I have a great Savior. There's nowhere in Scripture, listen, there is nowhere in Scripture where you will find a command, where you will be asked, where you're urged to forgive yourself. That dear woman imprisoned for 40 years in a sin for which she had repeatedly begged God for forgiveness and who said, I cannot forgive myself. As some of you may have said at some point in your life, I cannot forgive myself. Here is the liberating truth of the scripture this morning. You are never asked to forgive yourself in the scripture. Instead, you're asked to claim the sufficiency of Christ who redeems your past by his intervention by pouring out his mercy, by overflowing the boundaries and banks of your sin and your guilt with his incredible grace. Because Christ came to save sinners, then we look at the past and we see the sufficiency of Christ written in large letters. 
over what we were and over what we did. Some of us are less troubled about the past and we're more concerned with the present. We're, we're more concerned with the reality of, of sin's attractiveness now. And so if you notice in the text, Paul moves from the past tense in verses 12 and 13 and 14 to the present tense in verse 15. Because Christ came to save sinners, we claim his sufficiency for our present. We're not really troubled about the sins of yesteryear. We believe and, and, and stand upon the fact that we're forgiven people. But if we're honest with ourselves in moments of great candor, we would admit that, that sin and the attractiveness of sin is more present than we would want to acknowledge or admit. We find our hearts being pulled. We find our hearts being wooed. We find a culture pulling and tugging at us away from unfeigned devotion to Christ. We find that we're involved in a very real spiritual battle with an adversary who not only attempts us, but accuses us in the temptation. And so in the change of the tense of verbs, Paul says in verse 15, in the present tense, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom, now watch this, of whom I am the foremost, not was, past tense. Paul's honest about the reality of his life at that very moment as he's writing this this epistle to his friend and brother in Christ. As he's writing to an aging apostle, he's honest about the reality of his life at that moment. And in his honesty, he recognizes that he cannot rely upon his record. He cannot rely upon his achievement. He cannot rely upon his sufficiency or accomplishment. Even at that point in his life, and even we at this point in our life, must rely upon the sufficiency of Christ and claim his sufficiency for our present. Now, how do we respond to the pull, the present reality, the attractiveness and the allure of a fallen culture? Well, verse 15 suggests that we accept the word of God. We acknowledge the veracity, the trustworthiness, the integrity of God in giving us this message. Literally, the text says that faithful is the word. It's a way of emphasizing in the language. It's a way of emphasizing what's important. And it says faithful is the word and therefore deserving of complete acceptance. The validity of the text does not rest on my faithfulness. It does not rest on my great devotion The faithfulness and integrity of the text rests on God's faithfulness. It rests on his integrity and trustworthiness. Numbers 23 says of God that he's not a man that he should lie. Romans 3 says that let every other man be a liar, but let God be true. And Hebrews 6 verse 18 says it in even more plain and bare terms. It is impossible for God to lie. So the statement... That it's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came to save sinners is the basis. The fact that Christ came to save me, that he's done all that's necessary for my salvation. And claiming that sufficiency in Christ is the basis for the battle with the reality of sin in my life as it is now. We accept as completely true. We accept as utterly reliable the message That God has given to us in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything, listen, everything about Christ breathes 
his sufficiency as a savior. His incarnation, when he emptied himself and stooped and took to himself the likeness of humanity, when he was born in a feed trough in a manger, his very name, the angel in Matthew 1 appears to Joseph and says, you will call your son, not Joseph, but you will call him Jesus, meaning God is salvation. And you will call him God is salvation because he will save his people from their sins. There's no maybe there. There's no hope so there. There's no potential or possibility there. What the Lord is saying through the angel to Joseph and what he's saying to us in this text this morning is that Christ secures salvation. He anchors it for all of those who would come to faith in him, his incarnation, his name. His perfect, sinless, obedient life. He obeyed every precept, every principle, down to the very minute stroke of the law. He earned and merited righteousness and eternal life. And yet he went to the cross and suffered in my place, in your place, as though he had broken every law. Though innocent, he suffered the innocent for the guilty, the just for the unjust. So that as Paul says in Romans 5... He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You know your own life this morning and those who know you best know your own life and they know that you're not completely righteous. But what the scripture says is that he treated an innocent man as though he were guilty of every sin. So that because of that man, he might treat you as though you are as righteous as that man. The resurrection of Christ vindicates it. His present intercession secures it. Jesus said in John chapter 6 to a, to a large multitude, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And he who comes to me I will by no means cast out. But I will raise him up at the last day. What he's saying is all that the Father has committed to my care. All of the the work necessary for salvation that the Father has committed into my hands. I guarantee it that when you are brought to faith in me, I will raise you up at the last day. Now, Paul says it a different way in Romans 8. In very theological terms, he says, as many as God foreknew, he predestined. As many as he predestined, he called. As many as he called, he justified. And all those he justified, he glorified. And you say, what in the world does that mean? It means simply this. We sung it this morning. I am engraved on his palms with marks of indelible grace. It means that in my past, there's nothing in my past that has surprised or shocked God. J.I. Packer in his monumental book, Knowing God, says there's nothing that God can discover about you that will disillusion him as you're so often disillusioned about yourself. There's nothing that God will discover about you, not only that will disillusion him, but that will quench his love and determination to bless you. Such is the security and sufficiency of the work of Christ. We not only accept that message as something That's true and it's reliable and we share that message with others as we should. But that's a message that we preach into the fabric of our own hearts. We preach to ourselves the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We preach the message of Christ's sufficiency to our own hearts. The message that by grace God frees us from the guilt and power of our sin through Christ 
is not only the truth I share with other people, but it's the truth I preach back to myself. It's the truth I speak to my troubled heart. Beneath the surface courtesies and the polite Sunday civilities that we exchanged, some of us are find ourselves in marriages that are troubled and less than what we had hoped that they would be or could be. We find ourselves enslaved to various vices, addictions, and lusts. We're entangled in habits and situations that would embarrass and shame us if they were to become public. We're engaged in various dead-end pursuits. We're on the gerbil wheel of more money and bigger and better and more comfort and more ease. All those things that promise us much and deliver too little in the satisfaction of our souls. And the way out of this maze is not through willpower. It's not through, as we say, manning up. It's not through pulling your belt a notch tighter. It's not through through greater discipline. The way out of it is to look away from yourself and to behold the sufficiency of Christ's work. And to preach that truth in your heart so that it is woven into the fabric of your life. And out of that glorious and marvelous truth, there's birthed a heart of devotion and love for Christ. So that as those truths sink into your life, you become increasingly unsettled by things that you know dishonor Him. You become increasingly intolerant of things that you know displease Him. The truth of the gospel is that we're now reconciled to God, that God has satisfied our guilt by the life and death of another, that the judgment then of guilt has been revoked, the condemnation due our sin has been canceled, the curse of the broken law has been blotted out, and the power of indwelling sin is being subdued. And my conscience is being healed by the sufficiency of a Christ who has come to save me from my sin. And Paul illustrates these truths by pointing to himself in verse 16. He says, I'm an example of all of this. He says, everyone who comes to faith in Christ, you look at me. And you will see in me as an example of the perfect patience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And of his sufficiency to save and to renew and to restore. You look at me, he says in verse 16. And you see Christ's sufficiency on full display. We're in the, the part of the summer that in baseball terms is called the dog days. We've had a nice break in the weather this past week. And we're headed toward, um, we're headed toward September. I have um, the football schedule magnetized on my refrigerator. I, I love the fall. I love the change in weather. I love sweaters. I, I love college football on Saturdays. And If some of you will extend a kind courtesy of forgiveness, I love the Tennessee Volunteers. The part of the fall that I don't like, however, is raking leaves. Um, I have the secret ambition, the secret hope of, of taking many cans of lighter fluid and several boxes of matches and torching my backyard in the midst of fall and just having a party as all those leaves go up in smoke. Uh, I have a, a, a Bradford pear in the backyard, 
that uh, drops leaves rather late. You know, you think you've done all the raking and it's looking better, and then there comes those leaves. Worse yet, though, is something called the live oak. Are you familiar with that, the live oak? The dead leaves remain on the branches of the live oak all winter. Neither the chill of winter, neither the abuse of the cold, nor the pummeling of the wind can dislodge those leaves. You know what dislodges the leaves? It's the new life of spring pouring through the branches that nudges the leaves off and produces new buds and new blooms and new flowering. Well, by way of crude analogy, what your willpower cannot do, what your resolutions cannot do, what your best unaided intentions and efforts cannot do in the present reality of sin, the life of Christ and His sufficiency, a grace that's greater, a power that's greater. Christ has accomplished all that's necessary to overcome to overcome sin's guilt and power yesterday, today, and forever. And that truth, packed into verse 15, proclaimed into my heart day by day and steadily, gives me great joy and great peace to confront the reality of my life. You notice where this text ends and where we end in verse 17. Paul has talked about claiming the sufficiency of Christ over our past That one sin for which we seemingly cannot forgive ourselves. He says, look to the strength of Christ. Look to the mercy of Christ. Look to the grace of Christ. He talks about the the, the reality of what life is like now in the battle, the daily battle with your own heart, and with the culture, the world, and an unseen but very real adversary. And he says, believe and embrace the truth of God and the promise of God. It rests on his fidelity, his faithfulness, and his truthfulness. And where does all that lead? It leads in verse 17. It leads to us claiming the sufficiency of Christ, not for our glory but for the glory of another, for the glory of God. The text ends that we read this morning in verse 17. It ends in a doxology where Paul says to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to him be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen, or so be it. You see, Christ secures and accomplishes a saving end. He purchases all of God's new covenant promises and all the enablement that goes with them. He secures it and guarantees it by his work. And he gives it to us in grace and mercy. And all of that, brethren, leads to God's great praise and God's great glory. God has done all of this through Christ and accomplished all of this through Christ. Not so that we could live more self-centered lives, more self-oriented lives, more self-directed lives, but so that our lives might redound to the grace and the glory of God. We glory in God because we know that apart from His purposes, we remain in bondage to well-deserved guilt and shame. Apart from the sufficiency of Christ secured by His work, we remain unclean lepers and religious Samaritans groping and trying to find the reality of God. We remain in sin's dark domain. In August of 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after it took off from Detroit Airport. 
It killed 155 people. It was believed because of the horrific nature of the crash that there were no survivors. But as would-be rescuers began to survey the wreckage, they made a stunning discovery. There was a four-year-old survivor, Cecilia, from Tempe, Arizona. People who studied the crash and news accounts of the rescuers say that what they believe happened is that as the plane began to spiral down toward its lethal termination, her mother, seated by her, unbuckled her seatbelt and knelt in front of her and enveloped Cecilia in her arms and in her body to cushion her from the moment of contact. Sir Cecilia survived because another stepped in. Because the love of another compelled her to step in and to envelop her. Nothing could separate little Cecilia from the grip of her mother's love. And I tell you today on the basis of this text, and I tell you today on the basis of Scripture, that for all of those for whom Christ has secured salvation, nothing, nothing in your past... Nothing in your present and nothing in your future will thwart the determined purpose of God to save you and to rescue you and to present you faultless before His presence with exceedingly great joy. Nowhere are you asked to forgive yourself. You're asked to claim what Christ has accomplished for you and given to you out of the richness of His grace and mercy. Fathers, we bow in prayer this morning. You know our hearts. You know our lives. It's all there open before You. You know our quiet and desperate moments. You know the burdens we care, the heartache we endure. You know the problems that plague our hearts and our homes. And I pray that out of Your great kindness to Your people that You would magnify the sufficiency of Christ over all that plagues us today. Show us, Father. Holy Spirit, show us. Throw a spotlight on the greatness of our Savior and apply this gospel truth to our lives so that we, like Paul, might be able to say to the King of ages, eternal, immortal, invisible, be glory and honor now and forever and ever. This we pray and this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.